It's Monday, April 25th, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, the secret anti-monopolist history of the Monopoly board game. Plus, why we're all having trouble remembering things right now, and how we can strengthen our memories going forward. Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. According to the Parker Brothers, the board game Monopoly was invented by a man named Charles Darrow in the 1930s, who sold it to them as a way to provide for his family during the Great Depression. Now, that's not completely untrue, but it is leaving out a lot of other, much more interesting details. Chief among them that the game was originally invented by a very anti-Monopoly woman three decades prior, and that the world really only remembers her because a professor in the 70s dredged her story back up again during a legal battle with Parker Brothers, who was suing him for his creation of a board game literally called Anti-Monopoly. So Elizabeth Lizzie McGee was born in 1866, the daughter of an abolitionist newspaper publisher who traveled with Abraham Lincoln during his famous debates with Stephen Douglas. McGee, though born a year after the president was assassinated, learned a lot from her father and his politics. It was he who shared with her economist Henry George's book, Progress and Poverty. George believed, quoting the New York Times, that individuals should own 100% of what they made or created, but that everything found in nature, particularly land, should belong to everyone. George was a proponent of the land value tax, also known as the single tax. The general idea was to tax land and only land, shifting the tax burden to wealthy landlords. His message resonated with many Americans in the late 1800s when poverty and squalor were on full display in the country's urban centers. End quote. And those values deeply resonated with Lizzie McGee, who was a fiercely independent woman. She worked as a stenographer and performed comedy with a theater troupe. She also wrote poetry and short stories and even invented a piece for typewriters that would make loading paper through the rollers easier. McGee didn't marry until she was 44 and was a fully independent, land-owning woman, a rare phenomenon in the late 19th century. After a stunt putting an ad for herself in the newspaper referring to herself as a young woman American slave to level commentary about the position of women in society, she ended up working as a newspaper reporter, causing enough stir to make something of a name for herself, which probably came in useful when she eventually introduced a board game that she'd been percolating on ever since reading that Henry George book. Quoting Discourse Blog, McGee originally called it the Landlord's Game. It was modeled in part after a game played by Oklahoma's Kiowa tribe, and McGee imagined it as a tool for revealing the immorality of land grabbing and for teaching the principles of George. End quote. And here's how McGee herself described it in 1902. Quote, it's a practical demonstration of the present system of land grabbing with all its usual outcomes and consequences. It might well have been called the game of life, as it contains all the elements of success and failure in the real world. And the object is the same as the human race in general seems to have, i.e. the accumulation of wealth. Let the children once see clearly the gross injustice of our present land system, and when they grow up, if they are allowed to develop naturally, the evil will soon be remedied. End quote. In addition to its political lessons, the game was revolutionary for the time in its gameplay. Most board games back then had start and finish squares that players followed, but the Landlord's game had a continuous playing path, round and round again until the game ended. 
And while there were some squares on the board lost to time, like the poorhouse and the public park, there are others that remain on Monopoly boards to this day, notably Chance and Go to Jail. Another quirk of McGee's version that didn't last, two sets of rules. There was an anti-monopolist set and a monopolist set. While the latter is essentially the game as we know it today, the former saw all players get rewarded when wealth was created. The two sets of rules served as a lesson in financial justice. McGee applied for a patent for the game in 1903, receiving it the next year. She even tried pitching it to Parker Brothers, but they rejected her. So she self-published it. But being over a century before the era of Kickstarter, she didn't end up selling too many copies. That doesn't mean it didn't take off, though. A lot of people made their own DIY versions. The basic concept of the game spread around progressive circles, especially in the Northeast, and in their homemade versions, people would often write their own local street names and places to fill in the game board. As the game spread, the anti-monopolist set of rules was quickly forgotten, as people had more fun collecting up all the properties and accumulating as much cash as possible. And this is where Charles Darrow comes in, nearly three decades later. In 1932, he went over to the house of his wife's childhood friend in Atlantic City, New Jersey, and was introduced to their version of The Landlord's Game. He was immediately hooked, playing it several times and asking his friends to write down the rules for him to take with him home. He soon made his own version, tweaking a few things like adding the go and giving the properties the colors that we're still familiar with today. He called it Monopoly and pitched it to the Parker brothers, and this time they said yes. But when they found out that Darrow was not exactly the only inventor of the game, they went back and bought the rights to McGee's original patent for just $500. Darrow would go on to make millions in royalties, and Parker Brothers was saved from going out of business during the Great Depression like many other game companies did. As for McGee, as Mary Pylon put it in a New York Times adapted excerpt of her 2015 book, The Monopolists, Obsession, Fury, and the Scandal Behind the World's Favorite Board Game, quote, In 1948, McGee died in relative obscurity, a widow without children. Neither her headstone nor her obituary mentions her role in the creation of Monopoly, end quote. But fast forward a few decades, and people would remember her name again. In the early 70s, Ralph Onspach, then an economics professor at San Francisco State University, who sadly passed away last month at the age of 96, bringing this story to light once more, created a new board game called Anti-Monopoly. Quoting Mental Floss, It had occurred to Onspach during a lecture on Adam Smith that Monopoly was problematic. For capitalism to succeed, he believed, it must be competitive. The board game's ultimate lesson of success through corporate monopolization was thus flawed. Worse yet, because people associated family game nights from youth with a board game labeled Monopoly across its center, they were more or less being conditioned to appreciate the idea of such monopolies. End quote. Unlike Darrow, Onspach was never trying to pass his anti-monopoly board game off as a unique creation, just a play on a wildly popular game. In his version, instead of trying to acquire all the land and wealth, you try to break it all apart. And he did attract a pretty big following, eventually selling hundreds of thousands of copies of anti-monopoly. But of course, that means it wasn't long before Parker Brothers got wind of it and sued him for trademark infringement. But Onspach wasn't going to back down so easily, especially in such an ironic battle, with the board game titans themselves trying to shut down an anti-monopoly-themed game. 
By chance, Anspach's son came across a passage in a book mentioning that Charles Darrow may not have been the original inventor of Monopoly, and if he wasn't, that could mean that his patent for the game could be overturned, meaning that the game itself could be in the public domain. Anspach went so far as tracking down Darrow's friends who had first introduced him to The Landlord's Game, confirming the origin story I shared a moment ago. But he also discovered another detail that could help with his case. To this day, on Monopoly boards, there's a yellow square called Marvin Gardens, spelled M-A-R-V-I-N, Gardens. But the actual location in New Jersey is spelled M-A-R-V-E-N. The friend who had written down the rules of the game had misspelled it and Darrow copied it exactly, which could perhaps be enough for Anspach's lawyer to claim plagiarism. But the buzz around Anspach's case also ended up leading to all those old homemade copies of the Landlord's Games, the ones with the local street names from all different cities, to start circulating again. Things were not looking good for the Parker brothers, so, quoting again from Mental Floss, to make this headache go away, General Mills, parent company to Parker Brothers, made an offer to Anspach. In exchange for rights to anti-monopoly, they would give him $500,000 and an executive position at Parker Brothers. Anspach refused, which seemed crazier than filing the lawsuit in the first place. He feared that just as Parker Brothers eventually purchased rights to the landlord's game for $500 before burying it forever, they might also kill anti-monopoly, end quote. And so, Anspach lost the case. He later appealed and lost again. Two years after that, the Ninth Court Circuit of Appeals reversed the decision and it went up to the Supreme Court, who declined to hear an appeal, meaning Monopoly was no longer a valid trademark. And while that would eventually lead to the Trademark Act being amended to protect other corporations that lobbied Congress for protection against long-standing trademarks, anti-Monopoly, the board game, got to keep being made and is still available for purchase today. But there's one more wild ripple to this story. After Anspach lost the case for the first time, Parker Brothers went all Atari E.T. on him and literally buried thousands of copies of Anti-Monopoly in a landfill while journalists watched on. Mental Floss notes, The land was quickly sold and in proper Monopoly fashion, houses were built on top of it. End quote. And ain't that just the circle of life. If you've had any embarrassing moments recently, forgetting someone's name, or maybe some appointment you were supposed to be at, or something your partner swears they told you ten times, I have good news for you. You are not alone. Apparently, all of our brains are having trouble with memories right now. And the answer, like so much else, still lies in the pandemic. And while some people experiencing long COVID may absolutely have brain fog and trouble with memory, it's also affecting people without long COVID, simply due to the stress of living through these unprecedented times. And it's not just everything happening, it's that everything keeps changing. You're going back to the office, now you're not. Restaurants are closed, now they're open, but you have to show your vax card. Now there's another vaccine to get. No more masks required in stores. Your office is doing three days in the office. No, no, now it's just Tuesdays. Your school's kid brought back extracurriculars, but you all have to fill in a COVID screening survey each week. All of the constantly moving goalposts and changes to our daily routines take up a ton of cognitive energy. Energy that maybe used to go to remembering your former co-worker's name or how you used to organize your linen closet without thinking. 
Sarah C. Mednick, a neuroscientist at the University of California, Irvine, told the Wall Street Journal, quote, Our brains are like computers with so many tabs open right now. This slows down our processing power, and memory is one of the areas that falters, end quote. And yeah, the general stress of why all these changes are happening is not helping. Quoting further from the Wall Street Journal, Research led by University of Arkansas memory researcher Dr. Grant Shields shows that people who've experienced recent life stressors have impaired memory. Stress negatively affects our attention span and sleep, which also impact memory. And chronic stress can damage the brain, causing further memory problems, says Dr. Shields. End quote. And as I've mentioned before, we're also having trouble making memories and distinguishing between them because our lives throughout the pandemic have largely been more monotonous than many of us were previously accustomed to. With so many recreational activities and travel off limits, there wasn't a lot of novelty to act as guideposts in our memory timelines. And there are the usual suspects as well, being constantly online and scrolling, bombarded with information from all directions all the time. So what can we do about it? The Wall Street Journal summarized the following advice from the experts they consulted. First, basically accept it. Especially in the moment, if you are struggling to remember something, don't get frustrated and berate yourself. That can actually stop your thought processes in their tracks. Just take some deep breaths and try to retrieve the information from your memory again later. Cutting back on multitasking both overall and when you are trying to commit something to memory or to recall it is also helpful. You know, if you're really present and focused on what you're doing, you're more likely to remember it later. But it can also help as an exercise to do that for tasks when you don't really need to, because then you will be better equipped to do so when it actually matters. Similarly, when you're with people, really be present with them. Listen to them. Actively. No checking your phone during the conversation. Turn off the background noise. Hear what they're saying instead of planning your response in your head. And for long-term memory health, you can work to strengthen your frontal lobe by calming your brain with things like meditation, yoga, deep breathing, taking a walk, getting enough sleep, having one of those active listening chats with a good friend or loved one. Dr. Bednick says these are all activities that reduce stress and can help clear out your brain for better mental processing. We may be facing tougher challenges with memory in general right now, which is a good reminder to treat each other with a bit of grace and understanding, but it doesn't mean we have to completely give in. There's a difference between acceptance and resigning. Well, that's going to be it from me for today. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.